Welcome to the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm the chairman of the Precision Oncology Alliance, a large research collaborative network between Keras and many healthcare systems and academic institutions around the country focused on precision medicine, precision oncology, biomarker research, developing research questions, and finding answers that hopefully drive improvements in the outcomes of patients with cancer. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and to celebrate that, I have invited Dr. Stephanie Graff from Brown University. She's the director of the Breast Oncology Program at Brown University and Lifespan Health System. Uh, Dr. Graff has done a tremendous uh, work and research in breast medical oncology, and I thought I would actually ask her a few practical questions that might be of significance or of importance to listeners, whether these listeners are patients or practicing oncologists. I promise that you are going to enjoy today's episode of the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. And don't forget to find the show on all podcast outlets and to subscribe to it, write a review, and refer your friends and colleagues. Without further ado, Dr. Stephanie Graff on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Okay, well, it is really my pleasure to uh, host Dr. Stephanie Graff on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. We are airing this episode in October 2021, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and it's really a pleasure to discuss with Dr. Graf Law of the changes and uh, new advances in breast cancer at a very large, at a very high level. Stephanie, welcome to the show. I really appreciate you spending some time with the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Uh, Do you mind introducing yourself to listeners uh, uh, as to what you do, where you're doing it, and what got you interested in breast cancer? Sure. I am Dr. Stephanie Graff, like you said, and I am the Director of Breast Oncology at the Lifespan Cancer Institute at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. And I, you know, I I sort of stumbled into breast oncology maybe on accident. I started in fellowship interested in thoracic oncology and then found myself with some really strong female mentors in breast oncology, and then really connected with patients and their stories in in breast cancer care, and found it really suited me well. And here I am. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's amazing how mentors shape our career, isn't it? A lot of times it's who you meet and how you uh, look at a role model. And I know that there are a lot of uh, students, fellows, and residents who look up to you as, as your mentors. So appreciate all what you're doing. So, Stephanie, tell us a little bit, how, you, how did your management with breast cancer change over the years? Let's talk about early stage disease and then advanced stage disease. And I know you can't cover everything. I'm just curious when you meet <laughs> early stage breast cancer, how do you approach that right now? Yeah, I mean, I I agree that breast oncology really were sort of the pioneers of precision oncology from the onset of identification of the estrogen receptor. And honestly, even before then, we identified that oophorectomy or early menopause was one of the biologic markers of better outcomes for persons with breast cancer, even before we understood that the estrogen receptor was what was driving that. Um, And that ultimately led to 
precision medicine, right? So currently in the current landscape for early stage breast cancer, we still, you know, look at your clinical staging and your estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2. I also like to incorporate the KI-67 and use that information to guide whether neoadjuvant or adjuvant treatment is ideal in partnership with the surgeon and the radiation oncologist around what local therapy is going to look like, and then work together as a collaborative team with the patient to drive treatment forward over my I still like to consider it a short career as a mid-career oncologist over my relatively short career, um, early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer maybe hasn't changed a, a bunch. Oncotype DX and similar profiles have certainly advanced in their accuracy and utility, but they've been available to me throughout my career, certainly have growing um, importance the way that we can tailor response to neoadjuvant therapy and the way that we can um, even target triple negative now with some approvals looking at immunotherapy um, in that space, as well as germline BRCA1 mutations being targetable. Do you feel that histology is taking more of a backseat when we're dealing with uh, breast cancer right now? And it, 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 because when I was in training, a uh, long time ago, it was lobular versus ductal, and there was a lot of interest in looking at, at the histology. Uh, is that as critical as it was back in the day in 2021? I do think that histology in a lot of ways has taken a backseat. There's still stereotypes about histology, and it still prom- it still features prominently in things like the NCCM guidelines. For example, tubular carcinomas, we still sort of recommend no oncotype DX, nothing like that. They're just more bland tumors. But um, I I jokingly accused my pathologist of surprising us all with a run of HER2 positive lobular carcinomas recently, um, which shouldn't happen. And here we are with with several in a row at my institution of late. Um, So I, I think we look less at histology when it comes to our systemic treatments I think that lobular still has some surprises in the way we're able to image it. And that certainly influences my surgeon, my radiation oncologist, and even our breast radiologist when we're planning how we're going to approach the case with our local therapy, but probably less so in terms of our systemic therapy planning. So let's talk a little about advanced stage disease, because I have to tell you, I get dizzy sometimes when I go to uh, like ASCO meetings and others, there's the sessions are so granularly divided, a session on ERPR positive, HER2 new negative, a session on triple negative, a session, is, it's gotten crazy a little bit where really for the non-breast medical oncologist, it's really hard to keep up. So in in, in advanced disease, How do you simplify the approach for a general medical oncologist who may be listening to the show? So I think in hormone receptor positive, the the first line standard of care is clearly the CDK4-6 inhibitors. And I I don't think there's any argument there. I think whether you're combining that with something like fulvestrant or an aromatase inhibitor depends both on patient preference and prior lines of therapy, interval between um, adjuvant therapy and disease progression, 
that's pretty cut and dry. Beyond progression on a CDK4-6 inhibitor, I think that that's where precision medicine comes in. It opens up the door to screen for things like PI3 kinase mutations or other mutations that may open up clinical trial options for our patients, which is really important. For HER2 positive, I, you know, I still am not quite certain what the role of precision beyond the HER2 receptor is. Our medicines are phenomenally effective. And we just saw at ESMO um, relatively recently, just a landmark analysis looking at trastuzumab deroxycan in the second line setting. And, and we will continue to explore medicines like tocotinib and TDM1 and, and other medicines in that space, as well as an entirely new generation of ADCs that are being looked at. For triple negative, I think profiling early and often to try to figure out really what triple negative breast cancer is rather than what triple negative breast cancer is not. We already know that if it's PDL1 expressing, that there's a clear role for immunotherapy. If there's a germline BRCA mutation, targeting with a PARP inhibitor has a clear role. And so it's that triple negative population where Although it's this biologically aggressive disease and there's this strong stimulus to just start treatment, that taking a step back, taking that deep breath and waiting for all the information to treat that cancer. And I would counter that for a community oncologist, there's non-small cell lung cancers that you're treating and waiting for your molecular profile to treat. Those are just as aggressive as cancers. And it, none of us even bad an eye at waiting for a profile in a non-small cell lung cancer, we should be able to take that same pause for a young woman with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I think, uh, you know, it's just communicating with the patient and just explaining that to them because clearly that wait period make, makes everyone anxious. And as long as we communicate that, listen, we're waiting for this to make things better, it will make a huge difference. So, so what's the deal with checkpoint inhibitors in breast cancer? It's kind of confusing. <laughs> Help us understand what's happening there. What is the deal with checkpoint inhibitors in triple negative breast cancer? So right now, only we're only talking about checkpoint inhibition in triple negative disease. Um, certainly, we have work to do to figure out what will make non-triple negative breast cancer, quote unquote, hot and, and immunosensitive or immunoactive. Um, in triple negative breast cancer, in the neoadjuvant space, it's an all-comer scenario, although patients with higher expressions do seem to respond better and are maybe the patients that we should be considering it um, more strongly in based in the most recently reported analysis of the keynote studies. In the metastatic setting, it is patients that are pdl one expressing. Right now, it seems like pembrolizumab is probably our drug of choice. Atezolizumab had an accelerated approval that was recently sort of backed away from. I do think that we'll see some updated analysis as their data matures. I think we're just in a holding pattern waiting to get more information there. You know, when we look at the, the PDL1 data, we have data for pembrolizumab in combination with either paclitaxel, abraxane, or gemcitabine plus carboplatin. So I think looking at your patient's prior lines of therapy and prior comorbid conditions from adjuvant, neoadjuvant prior lines of therapy is really important. I think also understanding whether or not your patient has a germline BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation is relevant. When we looked at the 
Olympia study or the Imbraca study, which were the trials looking at PARP inhibitors, patients that were treated with PARPs in the first line did have the best response. So if your patient's going to benefit from those therapies, maybe we should be using them earlier. Patients who benefited from those therapies did seem to benefit more if they hadn't been previously treated with a platinum. So if we're going to use a PDL one in the first line of therapy, maybe we shouldn't use it in combination with a platinum, but rather with taxane. Um, so it's a little bit of a complex question in a BRCA mutation carrier with triple negative breast cancer, which is obviously a common scenario about how to use those agents in sequence. For a patient that is PDL1 expressing and not a BRCA mutation carrier, I think that PDL that a immunotherapy in combination with any of the available chemotherapy backbones is a very reasonable and probably standard of care first line. In the second line, our targeted therapy doesn't um, is really an all-comers target, which is sasetuzumab govotecan, which targets trope uh, two, which is expressed in probably 90% of breast cancers. And so we don't really test for the target. We just blindly give it to all comers and, and see really beautiful response rates. Um, and so we continue to explore how to use these medicines um, in more precision fashion. Again, target, target, target. I think that the value of precision, the value of profiling patients is to look for clinical trial options because we don't know where our next sasetuzumab govotecan, our next PARP inhibitor, our next pdl one drug is going to come from. And I'm still waiting for the moment where I find an, uh, a track uh, fusion and in the breast cancer space and get to use a medicine like larotrectinib, which allegedly will happen one in a million. And I want that unicorn in my patient population. So uh, I know we're tight on time, but just a couple, a couple of uh, common questions that I hear sometimes from uh, general oncologists. One is more for early stage disease. Now that you use Herceptin in adjuvant therapy uh, for the HER2 new positive uh, tumors, uh, do you consider the HER2 positive breast cancers poor prognosis, uh, good prognosis, uh, at least when I was in training, it was a poor, considered poor prognosis. And then people say, well, now we have adjuvant therapy. So do you, do you think, um, or in between? Yeah, that's a great question. I had that conversation with one of my friends in the breast oncology community after ESMO that based on the Catherine data, looking at non-responders to upfront neoadjuvant therapy, getting TDM1, that, you know, those patients did amazing. They had a fantastic response to TDM1 in the adjuvant space. And I think what the breast oncology community really needs to be working hard on is redefining what is high-risk HER2-positive disease. Because back in the days of Dennis Lehman, who was clearly pioneering HER2-positive was high-risk disease. The mere presence of HER2-expression was what defined HER2-high-risk disease. And, and now that we have trastuzumab, pertuzumab, TDM1, trastuzumab, deruxtecan, tocotinib, that's not true anymore. We're seeing amazing responses to those medications. And so being able to very closely identify the patients that we need to escalate and more importantly, de-escalate is going to be a really important next step for the oncology community. And then the other question I, I hear a lot about, 
today, if you take all comers, let's say, let's say we take 100 women with breast cancer, how many of these all comers do you always start with neoadjuvant therapy? Because the sense is, I mean, so is that almost becoming the standard of care now or a subset? Yeah. Another big debate. I, I personally, I tend to sit pretty heavily on the neoadjuvant camp in the, mostly because the Catherine data is just so striking that the opportunity to get the benefit of TDM1 in the adjuvant space, if you did not have a pathologic complete response to therapy with a relatively well-tolerated medicine like TDM1, I think is too powerful to pass up on. And you're going to have the toxicity of therapy. You're going to have the toxicity of surgery. So the sequence doesn't matter. It's coming at you anyway. And it's clear that we can give something like trastuzumab weekly for 12 weeks in combination, sorry, paclitaxel for 12 weeks in combination with trastuzumab plus or minus pertuzumab based on the size of the tumor, even neoadjuvantly with minimal toxicity for patients that have lymph node negative disease, if you don't feel that TCHP is indicated, and then still maybe add CADSILA if they didn't have a pathologic include response. And so I, I tend to be in the neoadjuvant for everyone category. Same with the CREATE-X data. I don't love the adjuvant capecitabine. It's a, it was a niche study in a select population. Um, it was a subpopulation that benefited it. There's contradictory evidence. We can poke holes in it but it still creates a space where we can look for trial options for patients. We can prognosticate and understand that that particular patient is very high risk, monitor them different, help them understand their disease with more insight. And that's really powerful for a person living beyond their breast cancer diagnosis. Makes a lot of sense. Thank you. So my last question to you, Stephanie, is that, um, you know, this October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, uh, and it's it's been for a long time for, I guess, you know, what's your message into whether uh, patients are listening to this or physicians are listening to this uh, during this month where we're trying to raise as much awareness as possible about breast cancer? Yeah, I have a real love-hate relationship with Breast Cancer Awareness Month. I, <laughs> I <laughs> There's... There's one, breast cancer has a ton of awareness. If you look at funding for breast cancer compared to other diseases, there's great awareness and, and there's a lot of fake awareness. Um, for example, alcohol is a clear risk factor for breast cancer. So selling pink vodka doesn't help anyone and probably harms people. Um, so, so there's parts of Breast Cancer Awareness Month that I, I find obnoxious, if not harmful. But by the same token, so many of our advances are because of the, the pinking of things and, and the fundraising and the passion and commitment and drive of the pioneers that led us to where we are. And so that commitment and drive needs to be celebrated. And I so, so I guess my messaging would be make sure your awareness moves from awareness to action and that if you're going to invest in pink causes, that they're worthwhile pink causes and that you stay true to that mission of making sure patients are participating in screening programs and that your money is driving toward worthwhile research efforts that are going to help us continue to advance this disease in a way that minimizes toxicity and saves lives. 
and celebrate wisely, I guess. Yeah. Well, Dr. Stephanie Graf, thank you so much for spending some time on the Keras Molecular Minute podcast. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And I know you have to go. So really appreciate your time. Thanks. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for spending some time with Dr. Stephanie Graf on the Karis Molecular Minute podcast celebrating Breast Cancer Awareness Month. But as she said, celebrate wisely. This is really important and it's very critical that we listen to the experts. As always, let me know how what you think of the podcast. You can send me an email to cnabhan at karisls.com or direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. And thank you for your support to this podcast. And until next time, take care.